It is a real non-going, ongoing, nonsensical argument that I hear about uh, pretty much every day by a couple of students on my bus. Uh, the first student is actually a country kid, and and uh, he calls this other student, uh, this little girl, third grader, he calls her a city slicker. The second student lives in Westby, this girl, and well, this second student, this little girl, she always responds by saying that she cannot be a city slicker because she actually lives in a town, not a city. And then she goes in, she starts to give the definition of a city and then a town and then a village, you know, a city versus a town versus a village. And it, it's just, uh, it, it just goes nowhere. It goes on and on and on until finally the bus driver has to say, stop, you're driving me nuts, okay? Actually, this is uh, it's similar to an argument than another couple of students that I have that insist that they know everything about everything, and one kid's like, well, no. It's, it's this kind of an argument. You've heard this one before, maybe from kids, that a male is nothing more, or I'm sorry, that a bull is nothing more than a male cow. And that gets nowhere either. They go back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. But you know what's happening when you, when you see that happening is, is that they're just arguing for the sake of argument sometimes. You know, that's what happens. And, and we do that sometimes. We argue for the sake of arguing. Some might call that fun. I mean, I, you, you, ever, you ever see some people, they start to argue and they kind of, well, they're not really trying to make any point. They're just trying to get the person that they're arguing with because for some reason they know this guy and they like to get under their skin. And, and what they're really trying to do is they're trying to get him to change his story without him realizing that he's changing his story or changing his opinion on something. And uh, we do that sometimes, and sometimes it's, it's called, we call it fun. Uh, I'm not sure that it's always fun, at least for both parties involved. And, but sometimes, sometimes you know that arguments can be a little bit more malicious than that. Um, they, uh, they tend to be designed in order to trap you. You ever feel like that? Has that ever happened to you where... Well, it happened to me just last week. Um, I actually did something that I rarely ever do. I answered the telephone. Uh, well, I mean, I made a big, sta- big mistake of picking up the phone when I was reasonably sure that it was a telemarketer. And it was. It was. But, I mean, it, it, it didn't matter how I answered the question. I, I mean, the, any way that I answered, I was in trouble. If I, if I answered yes... I was in trouble. If I answered no, I was still in trouble. I mean, it just really didn't matter. It was just worded in such a way that I was trapped. And so uh, about seven no thank yous later, I finally got off the phone. Some arguments, they, they start, maybe this is something that you recognize, but they start out as a conversation. You ever have, you ever have it where you're, you're talking with somebody and then you halfway through the conversation you kind of go, oh, I think we're in an argument. That happened to you? you, you they start out as this nice conversation. You kind of keep going and, and into this conversation. And before you know it, you realize you're really in an argument. And it's just going nowhere, but it's all just talk. And I, I, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to, Matthew, or to Mark chapter 12. Uh, because in this text, Jesus is in this debate. And if you will, Jesus is being asked some questions. And it's, it's kind of an argumentative sort of a text, and it's pretty obvious that some of the argument is just for argument's sake. Some of it is rather malicious. 
It's intended to trap him. We pick it up in verse number 13 of Mark chapter 12. And I would just ask that you would follow along because I want to make share a couple of comments here as we go along. <clears throat> but this here is clear. It's clear from the get-go, this first part, that this is one of those arguments that is intended to be malicious. Now look at verse number 13. He says, it says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, just, just a note here. These are strange bedfellows. Herodians, Pharisees, right? They did not like each other. They didn't believe the same things. But when you're out to get somebody, sometimes you'll join forces with people you don't normally like in order to get something accomplished that you want to do. Uh, but anyway, verse 14, they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Do you hear the flattery? Come on, I mean, they are buttering him up. They're setting him up. Oh, good teacher, you are... Such a wonderful guy. I mean, you don't pay any attention to what the kind of people that are that are asked, that ask the questions. Here's the question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? You know, the odd thing is that he can't win this argument. Right? You see that. He can't win it, no matter what he does. Because the Herodians would have said, absolutely. I mean, after all, we are under Herod's rule. And he's providing us with peace, and he's providing us with safety, and all these good roads. He's taking care of us, so pay your taxes. Uh, isn't it interesting that this text came up on tomorrow's tax day? <laughs> so I think the Herodians would say to everyone here, pay your taxes. And the Pharisees would have said, absolutely not, right? We don't want to be under Roman domination. I mean, this pair of people have come and, 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 and put him between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Jesus, that is. It does not make much difference which way he answers. He's in trouble. Well, at least that's what they're hoping for. But Jesus, verse 15, knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. The denarii, by the way, is, is one of those Roman coins where on the one side it has a picture of Caesar and uh, on the other side is, it has this imprint that is identifying uh, Caesar as the supreme ruler of that nation. Well, verse 16 says that they brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? He says, if it has Caesar's imprint on it, give it to Caesar. You know, then it obviously belongs to him, so give it back to him. But if it has God's imprint on it, then give it back to God. Well, guess what has God's imprint on it? Can you guess? We do, right? We are the ones who are made in the image of God. If it bears Caesar's image, give it to Caesar's. 
He's got some coins, give him some coins, but if it belongs to God, if it bears God's image, then give it to God. You, but, but you hear the call, right? I mean, you give, your, you give yourself to God because you bear His image. And then the paragraph closes by saying, they were all amazed at Him. I keep dropping this pencil here. I'm going to put it in there so I don't keep doing that. So that's the way it ends. That's the way that, par- uh, that paragraph ends. It says that they, are, they were amazed at Him. But then we get argument number two in verse number 18, which says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Him with a question. Now this is the aristocracy. These are the rich priesthood. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, the Sadducees asked, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, this is the Old Testament Leverite marriage principle. And the problem is, is that they think that that's what it's in the afterlife. They think that that's what's in the afterlife. It's just more of the same of what's in this life. Now, I think about that. I, I have a pretty good life. But if, but if you're telling me that all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to experience what I experienced lo- now in this life just longer? I mean, I don't think that's what I want to do. I mean, I, mean I, I love my wife, but, but eternity? I mean, come on. <laughs> I should probably tell you that, that Susan knew that I was going to put that in there. Okay. <laughs> But he says here in verse number 24, he says, you just don't get this. You don't get it. Jesus replied, he says, are you in error because you do not know the scriptures? Or um, um, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like, it doesn't say they're going to be angels. It says they're going to be like the angels in heaven. Now, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses and the account of the bush how God said to them, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You, he says, are badly mistaken. I mean, he simply says, you've got it wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand. Let's just move on. And that's when you get to the good question. I mean, you can contrast verse number 13. You know, they came to trap him with verse number 28 because here is this man who has this real question. And it's a legitimate question. He says, one of the teachers of the law came and and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them of all the questions, or all the commandments, I'm sorry, which one is the most important. That's not an uncommon question. That, in fact, is a very good, a very common Jewish question. 
See, what they wanted to know was that of all of the 613 commandments that they had counted in the Old Testament scriptures, which one, so you all thought that there were 10, but if we asked our kids today, our young people, especially Barbie and Nate and Mike, how many laws are there or commandments in the Old Testament, they would tell you, they would tell you 613. More than 10, yes, there's 10, right? Those are an abbreviation of all the other ones. They wanted to know out of all those 613 commandments that we find in the Old Testament scriptures, which one is the most important one? And I think that's really a fair question. It's kind of the question that you'd ask somebody that, that you consider to be a good teacher. And here's what Jesus says. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, verse number 32, well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. It's just, it's just a rather remarkable uh, answer to the question, don't you think? I mean, it's the, it's the Shema. Of, of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. You know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It, it's the thing that was supposed to be taught from the Father to the Son and, and passed on down. It was the thing that was supposed to be written on, on your doorpost, on your gatepost. It, it, you were to talk about it when you sat down. You were to talk about it when you stood up. You were, you were to talk about it, uh, you know, that, that God is one. And, and that's the point, is, is God is one, and you are to love Him. That's the number one commandment, Jesus says. In fact, what He tells us is this, and this is the key point, and if you're taking notes, if you want to take this, here's, here's what it is. Disciples love God with their whole being. Say whole being. That's what we do. That's the nature of what it's like to be a Christian. We love God with, with everything in us. And then he begins to delineate some things. It's, it's probably not an exclusive list, but it certainly gets at the heart of what things are about. We're to love him, he says, with our whole heart. Heart. In other words, our decisions please him. Decisions please him. See, the heart was not the seat of emotion, as it is, you know, at least not, a, not alone, like it is in American culture, right? The heart was the place where decisions were made. It, it, it was the part that, that stirred within us that said, this is what I want to do. This is, this is what I want to invest myself in. You know, we fall and pray to a pretty typical kind of cultural trend that says, you know, that we, that we give ourselves to the things that we love. 
that we feel good about, right? But that's, that sometimes as far as it goes. You know, when the feeling stops, then we're no longer in love, right? I was doing a wedding here. Uh, oh, this has been a while back. But you realize, of course, um, when <clears throat> that if you run a keyboard, that the I and the O are pretty close together. I think it's these two fingers here. You know, when you're typing on a keyboard, the I and the O are really close together. Um, and anyway, I'm right in the middle of this wedding ceremony. And I'm pronouncing the vows to this couple, and I come to the part that says, you know, that, uh, you know, where I'm asking the couple, will you be faithful, or the statement is, I will be faithful to you for as long as we both shall, except I had typed loved instead of lived. Now, I caught that, right? As long as we both shall live. But the more I thought about it, and the more I reflected upon that experience, I thought, you know, that's really where we are in American culture. As long as I love you, then, then we're okay. But if I stop loving you, then, oh, we don't really need to worry about that faithfulness thing. See, it's not unlike that, I think, in the church. You know, we get, we get excited about making certain decisions. You know, something happens, maybe it's a crisis event in our life. Maybe it's just because we sat long enough at the feet of Jesus and Suddenly we came to realize that he loved us and he wanted us to respond, so we made that decision, I want to give my life to Christ. And then something comes along. All of a sudden, we're not quite as much in love with him as we were. Maybe, maybe again, maybe it's a crisis event or in our life, or, and we think, you know, ah, <laughs> you know, maybe I didn't really mean that after all. I, you know, I, I don't know if I could ever, I thought about this the other day, and I I realize that the Bible says that if I continue to live as a disobedient person, that, well, well how, does the, how, does, how does the Bible say it? It says, if you love me, you will keep your, my commandments, right? And so I'm thinking about all that, but, you know, I don't know that I could ever say or have ever thought or if I could ever say that there was a time that I did not love God outside of that you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because I know, I, I just shared in my, my earlier communion meditation that I fall short. And, and Urban testified to that. And we have others that might do that, right? So, but, but my point is not so much that, that I didn't feel like that or I haven't fallen short. My point is, is that I don't know that I've ever thought to myself, you know what, God? You know, to utter those words would just be... But, but you know, I, I know people who have just... They're there and... But I can tell you this about myself. There have been times, there have been difficult times in my life where I have not felt like I love God. And I think a lot of people have been there. You know, I believed in Him. I even trusted Him. But in those moments, I wasn't feeling like I was loving Him. I mean, there was no emotion at all involved. But, but, but my heart, right? My decision-making process said, there is no place else to go, so I might as well stay right here until I get my feeling back. And that's the nature of commitment to God, to love Him with all of your heart, that, that you make your decisions please Him, whether you feel like it or not. 
He, he says we not only love him with our heart, he says that we love him with our soul. It's the place of our passions. Our passions please him. Uh, the thing that we really you know, give ourselves to, uh, you know, everybody's got something that turns their motor on, right? I mean, uh, something that makes you hum, you know, something that, that, that excites you, that you just, you just can't hardly live without. And, and I don't know if you know this, maybe you probably do, but one of the things that just really, really turns my motor on is I just love to preach. I love to do it, you know? It turns on my motor. It turns my motor. But, you know, sometimes... However, I struggle with letting the wrong things turn my motor. I mean, you, you don't even realize it's happening until it happens. I mean, there have been times when I liked watching football too much, and, and, and that's not a problem right now, okay? <laughs> Just letting you know it's not a problem. But there have been times when following the news became my passion. I've got to really watch out because I've got this, this craving that has to know what's going on, and yet... You know what it's like to watch that news cycle over and over and over. The big, they say, well, if the news, all the news headlines in every, every 15 minutes, you know, nonstop. You can just get your head full of that, right? And that becomes, because I want to know, and I want to know what's happening, so I want to be informed, right? And sometimes I do that too much. Uh, there have been times when everything that I, in my life, just centered around fishing and hunting and those things, you know, those are different seasons, Right? But you know, in the midst of all those times when those events, I'm just giving you a few things in my life. You know what happens, though? You know what takes the back seat when that happens, right? Christ. My devotional life suffers. It just falls flat. Um, my personal time with God, it suffers. It takes a back seat. And then somehow in the process of that, God and I begin to have this conversation. I'm saying, Lord, this isn't going well very well because, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm crowding out my spiritual life in order to focus on those other things. You know, I don't know how it works for you, but, but I, I can tell you that this is how it works for me. But somehow God either somehow inevitably answers my prayer, uh, the discussion or the talk that we're having, or somehow he changes my circumstances and, 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 and inevitably I come and I'm able to refocus. And all of a sudden, pretty soon, I have all this time well, time enough anyway for, guess what? My personal devotions start humming my motor again, right? See, some things just turn you on, and some things don't. And what he's calling for, I think, is let your passion belong to him, to him alone. I, I, I don't know about you, but all I, want is, is, all I want is for my passion to be him. I want to love him with everything in my soul that turns me loose. Do I always succeed at that? No. But that's what I want. He says, love God with all your heart. Love God with all your soul. And then he says, love God with all your mind. In other words, our intellect, our thinking, our understanding, our, our thoughts begin to honor him. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, that we're to take every thought captive to Christ, all the areas of our thinking. Or Romans chapter 12, verse, uh, the, the first few verses, it, it, they tell us that the transformation occurs when you begin to think differently. See, if you want to change the way people live, you've, 
you really have got to change the way that they think. And, and so he says, love him with your mind. Uh, give him all of your intellect. Put your brain to work around this thing. You see, if, if life is going to be lived to the fullest, the way that God wants it lived, you've got to start by changing people's minds. You have to change the way we think. And when you change, if you're able to change the way we think, then you can change the way that we act. I think, well, I know it is. It, it's why we preach the Bible around here. It's why we encourage you to be in God's Word every day because there are so many people out there in the world that's, that's vying for our minds. I know that you've heard me say this before. I say, you know, let's not go around and ask everybody's opinion about these things. Let's go to God's Word and find out what He says to our lives because at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the world says about life and salvation and about all these topics that we come across day and day. What matters is what God says because He's the author He's the judge. He's the, the ruler. He's the Lord. But that's why we encourage us to, to be in God's word every day because, I mean, there's so many other messages that are vying for our minds. They, you know, they call it school. They call it entertainment. They call it education. They call it progress. They, but I guarantee you, for better or for worse, they are after our minds, and it's mostly for the worse. And so we encourage you to be in God's Word, to get God's Word into you, because if we're going to love God, he says we're going to, have, we're going to love God with our minds. And, and then he says we're going to love Him with our strength. We're going to give Him our energy. Our activity is also going to please Him. It's the way that we portion our time. I, that's really what he's talking about here. I, I made this discovery, and it wasn't... Uh, there was a time in my life that I simply had unlimited energy. Um, and it wasn't last week. <laughs> I mean, I remember times when Susan and I, we'd get into the church, we got out of church on a Sunday night. We used to have Sunday night church. Anybody have that? Maybe none of you. We'd get out of church out on a Sunday night. We'd take off in the car. We'd go 450 miles up north to see my folks. We'd come back the next day. I don't got that in me anymore. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Um, I actually did that this last summer. I had to rush up to do something, take care of some family things, and I'm, I'm telling you, it took me a week and a half, two weeks to recover from that. Oof, <laughs> man alive. Um, <coughs> what I discovered is that if I'm going to get some things done, I need to start to portion my energy. Now, can I say this without getting in trouble? Um, at least too much trouble. See, we have all got all these things to do. We got a, well, we don't yet. We're uh, this is this is wishful thinking. I'm really hoping that spring will get here. But you know, we got the lawns to mow. You know, we got to go shopping. We got all these tasks that we have to do every day, and all these things that are on our plate. But if we are too tired, if you are too tired to spend time with God, and to spend time with His people. If you do not have the energy to serve the Lord, then you're not portioning your time well with this in mind. To love the Lord your God with all of your strength. You're only loving Him just a little, with a little bit. So what does he say? He says, love God with your whole being. You notice that the guy only asks, asks this question, right? You know, what's the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus comes along and he says, well, I'm going to give you two. You know, I mean, it's just like him, you know. I mean, only want one. Thanks. It's, it's a little tough enough for, to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, mind, and strength. But now he says, you know, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. But that's what a disciple is, right? It's a, a disciple is somebody who loves God's people without discriminating. We love ourselves. That's what he says, and that's okay. Not wrong with that. You've got to learn to appreciate yourself. Say, uh-huh. See, one of the troubles we have in American culture is that we don't like ourselves. I, I, I don't know. I just read this, and I don't, I don't know how truthful this is. I mean, I, I think it's true, but at least the guy said it. He, but I read somewhere this last week, some psychiatrist somewhere, who says that he was saying that the inability to accept oneself and one's shortcomings is the number one problem in the clients that they counsel, that counselors do. But see, God says this. He, this book here, the Bible says, you and I, we have enormous value. Why? Because you are made in the image of God. He said, before you were even born, I had my imprint on you. You belong to me. But you know how American culture is, right? We're always having to compare ourselves with, with so many other people, what they think, and that's, that's what it, it, it just kind of, it takes precedent over what Maybe this says sometimes, I mean, but you know how it is. If enough people tell you that you're not feeling well, by the time you go to bed tonight, you're taking an aspirin. But God says, listen to me, I made you in my image. You have value. Love yourself because, well, frankly, if you don't love yourself, you're not going to love me. But he also says love others. We love our neighbors. We have this healthy sense of God's family. We have this, well, this statement that, that says that we're supposed to love each other. It's, in fact, in Galatians it says, in the book of Galatians, it says that you're supposed to do good to the, you know, primarily or first of all to the, to the household of faith. You know, we're supposed to love those in the church. Well, all that really means is we're not supposed to go around harboring anger with one another. Don't go around gossiping uh, about one another. Don't go around with hard feelings about one another. Just, you know, we deal with those issues because we do love each other, because we do care for each other. But this is, it's, it's, this is the greatest commandment God gives, love each other. But he says this, he says, you are also to love those who are not in the faith. I mean, you don't have to go very far outside these doors uh, to, to find people who are hurting and they need someone to love them. That is our job. That's the greatest commandment, to love people like we love ourselves. I, I wish I could remember the circumstance. It was on the news the other night, somebody who went out of their way to help somebody that they didn't even know who was, that person was in need, and it made the news. And we don't hear a lot of that stuff anymore. We don't hear enough of it. But I think that's what he's talking about here. Loving people people you don't know, investing yourself, because that's the thing that God calls for you and me to do. What do disciples do? They love God, they love themselves, and others. Well, bottom line, here, here, here's what it is. Discipleship calls for absolute surrender. That's the bottom line. If you, if you, if, if you want to be the person God wants you to be, He calls for you to give yourself totally to the Lord. 
to love him, he calls you to give him, to, to, to love him, right? To love others without reservation. That's what a discipleship. What, what discipleship is, it's, it's, it's absolutely surrendering yourself to him because he's the one who wants what's best for you. Uh, in fact, that's what the last two paragraphs become, and we're going to quickly look at that. But look at down in verse 38. He says, he gives this example. He says, it says, uh, as he taught, Jesus uh, said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the Places of honor at banquets, they devour widows' houses in for a show, make lengthy praise or lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. He says, "We sacrifice our self-importance." I mean, th- these people wanted everybody to notice them. To put all the colors in the robes, they went out, uh, went to all the important places, and and Jesus says, "Watch out for people like that." They're too self-important. He says, you want to be my disciple, you've got to surrender that kind of self-importance. And then he uses this illustration in verse 41. It says, uh, he sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people, it says, threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, I don't think the point of that story is that next time we come to church, we should only put in two small copper coins. I think the point of that story is real disciples surrender the self-reliance. Those coins weren't worth a thing. That's true. You couldn't buy lunch with those two copper coins. But Jesus said, you notice, she didn't put in just one. She put in both. She wasn't reserving anything. She was loving without reservation. Oh, the other people put in a whole lot of money. But it didn't cost them anything because they still have stuff in their pockets, right? They drug it out of their riches, and when they got done, when they got done giving, they were still rich. But when she got done, she had given absolutely everything, leaving herself no place to turn except one place, to God, in reliance. Other than the fact that this story is about money, or other that it that uses these two coins and all that, this, this, that story is not about money. It's not. But that's what discipleship is. It's that kind of absolute surrender to the Father so that you're no longer worried about how important you are. You're no longer worried about your own, your, your ability to rely upon yourself. You, you come to the place that you understand that there is only one place to turn, one place only, and that is to God through Jesus Christ. And if there was a model anywhere, of somebody who practiced absolute surrender, it was him. It was Jesus. No self-importance, no self-reliance. Just do what God calls you to do. Love him with everything in your being. And next time you see a cross, you'll understand what that meant.
And he calls you to love him the same way, totally surrendered to him. Everything, your hands, your feet, your lips, your heart, given over to him, totally relying on him. He invites you to give yourself absolutely to him. And since that's what he invites, that's what we invite. We invite you to love him that way, to give yourself absolutely to him. Let's pray. God, you are so very worthy of our allegiance. I think sometimes we we put on you the things that we see in the world. I guess the things that we experience and we see in the world, we, we expect that you're going to be running the same kind of schemes. And yet the reverse is just opposite. Father, I know that we give the world our allegiance and it's going to take us uh, for everything that we have and enslave us. But we become your slaves and you set us free and you give us, you give it that freedom and that, that ability to, to know that we're valuable and we're important. And that's the true nature of, of the gospel. And Father, I just love this text that just encourages us to just trust in you and to, to give ourselves absolutely to you that we might have peace, that we might find meaning, that we might experience purpose. And God, I just pray for those times in our lives where we do fall short, where sometimes that we we take to, tend to take it for granted what, what you've done for us. And we, we stir off, we, we, we get off the path. Bring us back to yourself. Help us to be, be giving ourselves daily to you. Everything we have, absolutely everything. In Jesus' name, amen.